Good morning, or a good afternoon, or a good evening. This is our fourth week of messages following Jesus to the cross. We began with tears, ashes, and trumpets. Tom then spoke of Jesus' anointing at Bethany. And last week, Chris spoke of Jesus in the upper room, especially about his serving and love as an example to us. Although this weekend we remember Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, adored by crowds who welcomed him by covering the dusty road with branches cut from trees and even their own clothing, we remember that the welcome was very short-lived indeed. Last week's message from Chris on the teaching and guidance of Jesus from the upper room and this message I'm giving now on the experience of Jesus in the garden both recall events that occurred after Palm Sunday. These two messages recalling events occurring during the very same night. These present days are trying us like none ever before seen in our lifetimes. People are suffering in various ways and will continue to suffer for many months, probably years. Please pray with me as we begin. O oh, Father, our gracious God, how rapidly circumstances can change in this world. When life is calm and all seems under control, the illusion is easily wiped away from something so small as a virus. Help us, O oh God. Have mercy on the sick and dying and on all who are trying to help them. Stop this plague for the sake of your great name. Because of your steadfast love, we pray. Cause us to cling to you, to seek your face, to learn from you in these days. Cause us in the daytime to do everything without complaining or arguing, so that we may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in this generation such as it is, in which we shine as lights in the world as we hold forth the word of life. Cause us at night to lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make us dwell in safety. We ask this in the name of our suffering Savior, Jesus. Amen. The night preceding the crucifixion, so much happens in this single night. Each of the four Gospels share a huge amount of various details. Toward the beginning of the night, Jesus begins to eat the Passover with the twelve, washes their feet in the middle of the meal, and identifies Judas as a traitor. Judas goes out. Jesus institutes our tradition of communion at the conclusion of the Passover meal. He teaches the disciples many things about the future and prays his long prayer for the present and future church. At the beginning of the night, Jesus is the Son of Man and Son of God, surrounded by followers and in many of his roles to date, provider, friend, servant, teacher, intercessor. By the end of the night, Jesus is arrested, bound, alone, and on trial for his life. But back nearer the beginning of the night, after Jesus and his disciples sing a hymn and leave the upper room, they walk out eastward over the brook called Kidron to the Mount of Olives, toward the village Bethany, where they've been spending the nights. And rather than go straight to Bethany, they pause at a place at or near the foot of the Mount of Olives. They'd been to this location many times before, and even now it must have seemed to the disciples a likely place to stop on their way to the place at which they could lay down their weary heads. A little technical note here, you've read through Matthew's account of Gethsemane together, so if you're using the slides, skip ahead to slide number four, the one immediately following the passage. From here on, I'll simply call out the next slide, and you just advance to the next one. The name of this place was Gethsemane, Matthew and Mark tell us. 
Gethsemane is taken from the Hebrew gath, meaning wine press, and shemen, meaning oil. Thus, we could call it oil press or olive press. Only John refers to the place as a garden, but we would more likely call it an olive orchard, and judging by the name, a place at which oil was pressed from the olives that grew there. Olive oil was used for lighting and cooking, but also for offerings and for anointing. Now our God is a poet, and it's fitting that Jesus would battle and suffer in a place known for huge pressure, a squeezing with great force, associated with the very oil used for anointing and offering. Slide 5. In the daytime, this was a peaceful, familiar, useful place, well-lit and even cheerful. But here in the garden on this night, it wasn't in any way romantic or even pastoral. It was a place of painful and sorrowful tension, a place of agony. Slide 6. It was dark, but as bright as a dark night could be since the moon was always full at Passover. Not only was it dark, it was cold. It was most likely the first week of April, and it was far into the night. We know it was cold because early the next morning men will be warming themselves over a charcoal fire. And Jesus, in his hour of greatest need, struggling with the task before him, will be deserted by those he had been with almost continuously the past three years, those he had served and taught and given himself to and loved in myriad ways, calling them friends. He felt all the pressure of an olive press. And it was a garden. We remember the first garden, the one the Lord made for man in Eden at the first creation. That garden was a perfect place of unbroken intimacy with God until man's betrayal of God severed the holy relationship. And here in this garden, God the Son would begin to face a betrayal which would, incredibly, accompany a restoration of man's relationship with God. The Lord is a poet indeed. Slide 7. This is not the upper room. Jesus is single-minded here, and the task at hand in this garden is prayer. Perhaps the disciples had prayed with Jesus here on many previous visits. Maybe they had only watched and listened as he prayed. Tonight, Jesus tells his disciples to pray that they might not enter into temptation. They probably had little idea what temptation they would so soon be facing. But tonight, Jesus would pray alone. And he takes three of them with him a little ways, the usual three, Peter, James, and John. He wants some companionship, but it's clear he intends to pray, if it must be so, all alone. His aloneness is striking, and the gospel writers struggle to describe the intensity of his feelings. Greatly distressed, Mark describes Jesus here and nowhere else. It means out of one's senses. Troubled, used only twice for Gethsemane and once in Philippians, meaning full of heaviness, intensely uncomfortable. And Jesus himself says he is sorrowful even to death or to the point of death. He's virtually paralyzed with sorrow, but not too paralyzed to pray. No wonder as Jesus prays, Luke tells us, on this cold, dark night, he sweats profusely, his sweats like drops of blood pouring down upon the ground. Slide 8. No wonder he falls first onto his knees, then upon his face as he prays. He's not just in a position of submission here, but one of utter desperation. Most of us, feeling overwhelmed with tremendous grief, would welcome the gift of presence, would want our closest friends to just be with us, the way Job's friends were with him before they opened their mouths. Mere presence can be a powerful comfort. 
This is what Jesus asks of his friends here. Remain, abide, stay alert, watch with me and for me. In modern parlance, he might have said, hang tight with me. But he moves a little farther from them to address the Father alone. What he brings to prayer is the very thing that has made him greatly distressed and troubled and sorrowful even to death, the terrible sacrifice that lay before him. We might not know everything Jesus brought before the Father here, but we do know the main thing. In one sense, Jesus doesn't want to suffer the way he's about to suffer. Up to the very moment of his bodily death, he will have never known guilt, shame, and wrath, terrible rejection from the one who has always loved him best, his own Father. Can you imagine all this means for him? I cannot. So he pleads with the Father earnestly, repeatedly, Take this terrible task away from me. Jesus cannot pray long without thinking of his friends. Slide 9. He checks on the disciples and each time finds them dozing. They are not alert, not watching, certainly not praying. They sleep because they've eaten a big meal and because it's far into the night. And they sleep, Luke says, for sorrow. Have you ever slept for sorrow? Sorrow keeps some of us awake and others of us sleep to escape it. The disciples, in a grief maybe more felt than understood, do the very opposite of what Jesus asks them. They don't stay alert. They don't stay truly present with Jesus. They sleep. Dying people sometimes sense their loved ones pulling away before they die, pulling away first, separating themselves from the one who is dying. Maybe you've sensed yourself pulling away from someone about to leave you. Maybe it's just easier to leave than to be left. Jesus asked them to stay awake, stay alert, hang with him, pray with him, and they just can't or won't. Their desertion of Jesus begins right here. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Jesus observes. Here their flesh prevails. Jesus goes to prayer three separate times this night. He is full of searing pain. This is a battle. The anticipation of the pain ahead of him is terrible in itself. He's desperate. Jesus is the son of God, but Jesus the man needs some help here. He's not getting any from his friends. Luke tells us that an angel appeared to him, strengthening him. And indeed, eventually, after pleading with the Father over and over again, he does appear to find true strength. He's able to pray, finally, however weakly, Father, your will be done. If the horrible thing that I must face is the only way forward with your plan, so be it. Jesus is tested here like no one ever was, nor will be, and he passes the test. I'm not sure how much time elapsed as Jesus repeatedly prayed and checked on his disciples. It seems likely to have gone on for some hours. Even the pace is sleepy. But from this point on, events in the garden preceded a full gallop. And all that happens next transpires in only perhaps two or three minutes, much faster than I can describe the scene. Slide 10. There's a sense of confusion, of chaos, a sense that the world will go spinning out of control. Jesus seems to be the first to spot Judas leading a crowd into the garden, or maybe he just knows they're near. He tells the sleepy disciples to get up. They had not stayed with him. They had not prayed. But now they stagger groggily into standing positions. Approaching them is a mob of soldiers and agents of the Jewish religious authorities following Judas. 
They carry with themselves light and swords and clubs. Here in the shadows, Jesus is standing among his little band, facing the mob. The mob has never seen Jesus, so Judas has come up with an ironic plan to single him out. Slide 11. He could try to identify Jesus by some description, but there's nothing exceptional about Jesus' appearance. He could describe where Jesus stands in relations in relation to his disciples, but maybe there's too much room for misunderstanding this instruction. He could just point, but it would be too easy to misjudge exactly whom he points at. So he strides right up to Jesus, who bids Judas to act quickly and injects a little irony here. He addresses Judas as friend, and we don't know whether this address stings Judas or not. Judas leans toward Jesus, who then quietly questions this means of identifying him to the mob. You betray me with a kiss? But Judas does just this. He kisses the Lord of all in order to betray him. We can guess that Jesus felt stung. The mob still hesitates, standing back. Jesus steps toward the mob, asks whom they seek. They tell him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Really, literally here, simply and profoundly, I am. John describes that at this ancient name of the eternal self-existent one, instantly something like a shockwave strikes the mob and against their own will they step back and fall to the ground. They've come to exercise power over the all-powerful one, yet they instinctively back away from him. They fall. I can't help but wonder, was it to their knees? In a picture of a yet future day, against their own will, they assume, however briefly, a position of submission to the one to whom someday every knee shall bow and all will confess. Jesus asks the question again, Whom do you seek? Again they reply, no doubt a little more meekly than before, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answers again, insisting the mob get on with it and release the men at his back. Slide 12. The mob gets up now, emboldened by Jesus' meekness and moves toward him, laying their hands on him. Suddenly the disciples, confused, barely shaken off their sleep, seeing their master manhandled or suddenly wide awake, they have a fleeting surge of bravery. Shall we fight? they ask Jesus. Allowing no time for his reply, Peter, ever the impulsive one, lurches forward and slices the ear of the one person in the mob without a weapon, the high priest's slave, whose name was Malchus. But this means a battle, more violence, bloody hand-to-hand -hand combat. Many will die in this garden tonight. Only one thing prevents this. Jesus shouts, even as Peter's sword strikes, no more of this. Everyone freezes. His authority is not questioned by either side. Jesus reaches up to heal the slave's severed ear. And as has happened frequently over these years, Jesus turns here to counsel Peter and the rest. Put your sword away. Those who live this way will die this way. You know my Father would deliver me should I ask it. All heaven's hosts are at my disposal. And finally, the Father has given me a bitter cup to drink. Shall I not drink it? The Lord Jesus is in no doubt here. He refuses every possible deliverance from the pain ahead. Slide 13. He turns back to the mob. You've come out against me as a, against a man of violence with weapons. His implication here is clear. You know I am no criminal, that what you are doing is wrong. 
He tells them, I was with you in public places, and you never seized me there. The implication is clear. You know what you are doing is cowardly, and so you do it secretly. The sum of these messages to Peter and to the mob is Jesus saying, I will not resist. This must be so. His lonely, desperate prayer has paid off. He will submit to the Father's will. By Jesus' meekness, the mob is emboldened again, or perhaps just resigned to finishing their grim task. They bind Jesus, tie his hands together, likely with chains, and begin to lead him out of the garden. Slide 14. One emotion dominates the disciples here, and again it highlights the weakness of the flesh. They had not been vigilant, had not prayed, and they were not at all ready to resist this temptation. They would not remain with Jesus tonight, would not identify with him, certainly would not die with him. They were scared out of their wits. There was only one thing they could do, and they would do it. They deserted Jesus and fled. Jesus would go off as a sinner would, alone and bound and tried and convicted, but also to suffer for all the sins of the world throughout all of history and all the future, not a one of which he ever committed. Those who had pledged themselves to him, well, they would turn their backs and run. Well, here things look bleak, but you know that this is only the middle of the story, actually only near the middle, which occurs some hours after this scene. Tune in next weekend. Jesus' suffering wasn't meant to surprise anyone like it surprised the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He asked them, in Luke 24, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? suffer? Then he showed them from the scriptures of what we now call the Old Testament. And the end of the story, that's still ahead of you and me. Up to this scene in Gethsemane and all the history the Word of God recounts, you might doubt that God could really understand human suffering like we humans do. He is, after all, all-knowing and all-powerful, so nothing is unknown or surprising, and there's no definite reason for such a being to suffer. He is, after all, spirit, and what of human suffering can a spirit really feel? Although he allows Satan to inflict terrible suffering on Job, in the end, though God's revelation of himself is enough to silence all Job's complaints, and God's restoration of Job's riches and legacy must have given Job some measure of satisfaction, in the end, we don't get any sense of the Lord sympathizing with Job. God still stands before Job, separate from him, and apparently emotionally distant. But here in the garden, everything changes. Jesus so obviously suffers. God incarnate suffers, and he suffers terribly. Why? What do we gain by it? From the Garden of Gethsemane, there are a few things I want to say about Jesus' suffering and how it makes an impact on us, even apart from the value of his atonement for our sins. The suffering of Jesus applies to all our suffering, the catastrophic down to the trivial, the individual trials and the sum total of them, the actual pain and the anxiety about pain. And of course, his suffering applies to what any of us might be going through right now, maybe sickness or the fear of sickness and death, loss of work and financial security, boredom, deprivation of various kinds, especially isolation and loneliness, and even some overwhelming sense of chaos, confusion, or frustration in these crazy days we are living through. Slide 15. 
First of all, Jesus knows just how terrible human pain can be and how desperate it can make us feel. He felt pain, here emotional pain, and later searing physical pain as deeply as anyone can. He knows our suffering, your suffering and mine, is also terrible. The Lord Jesus sympathizes. He feels for us because he empathizes. He feels with us. He knows the most intense kinds of suffering, the kinds that have shaped and can, though it's, never, though it's not what God ever intended, can even define our lives. He knows what it feels like to be hurt by the people we love, the people with whom we have shared the deepest intimacies, the people we thought we could count on all the time. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed by these people, to be abandoned by them when we needed them most. So every parent, every brother or sister or cousin, every close friend and neighbor, every lover and even your spouse of few or many years, every coworker and employer, and everyone else who ever hurt you by betraying your trust, by abandoning you at the worst of times. Jesus knows just how terrible this feels because he felt it all himself there in the garden and beyond. This is what we're taught in the book of Hebrews in the second chapter. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus is merciful and faithful with us as we hurt because he has known the same pain. He never promised us freedom from suffering. In fact, he promised that we will have trouble in this world. But in the very same verse, in John 16:33, he also promises comfort and strength and even peace. As Jesus found an angel strengthening him, we find Jesus himself will strengthen us, as Paul tells us at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, of the one he calls the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Jesus is present. He knows our suffering, and he shares it with us. So go ahead and cry out to Jesus in your pain as Jesus cried out to the Father. He is present in your suffering, and he will comfort and strengthen you. Slide 16. Second, Jesus knows the dread of suffering and resistance to it. He didn't want to suffer. The apprehension was terrible, and he felt strongly resistant to it. He asked for release from the suffering ahead of him. He understands we don't want to suffer, that we dread it, that we would just rather not. Sometimes the sense of the difficulty you're in, or will be in, is greater than the difficulty itself. Anticipation of the suffering we face produces anxiety, and this anxiety can overwhelm all the other aspects of the suffering itself, overwhelm our thinking, and even disable us. Jesus understands this. My eyes were opened to this in an amazing way 12 years ago, our very first week in Tucson. We'd moved down here from Oregon after returning for many years outside the U.S. The car needed work, and I waited in the mechanic's lobby, reading my Bible. Another customer came in and sat down, asking me about the book in my lap. Turns out he was a brother in Christ, and we got to sharing our lives. I told him about the great burden I was feeling. 
The previous year, I'd abruptly left our home and ministry in Afghanistan and most of the family to try to help a child who was falling apart. My family had been separated for months by three countries on two continents. Almost a year later, the struggling child continued to struggle deeply. The other kids would also struggle in readapting to American culture. Now we'd come to this new place where I was to begin my first job in the U.S. after a gap of almost 10 years, and my work overseas had been very different from the work that lay ahead of me. And I was stressed. Seemed things would get worse before they got better. On top of this, I told the brother stranger, knowing that I was to be anxious for nothing, I felt guilty for all my anxiety. This brother immediately told me, guilty, no need for that. Think about Jesus in the garden. My mouth fell open. I'd never thought about the Lord Jesus in the garden in an agony of suffering. He understood just how I felt, understood it more deeply than me. He understood my unhappiness and my suffering, my resistance to it. He'd been there. Hebrews goes on in chapter 4 to tell us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I felt at that moment that Jesus himself released me from my false guilt. I could suffer. I could feel unhappy about it and resistant to it. But I didn't need to heap upon my suffering some notion of not being spiritual enough. It wasn't sin. Who is more spiritual than Jesus? But even he dreaded suffering. I don't know who that guy was at the mechanic. An angel? Maybe he was. When you think about all the components, all the aspects, all the different ways you were suffering and what lies ahead, it can be just plain overwhelming. Jesus knows this. So go to him with all your suffering and all the anxiety of it and cast it upon him. He knows. He cares. He sympathizes, and he will comfort and strengthen you. Slide 17. And finally, Jesus knows how hard it is to submit to God and entrust oneself to him while suffering. Here are two peculiar truths. All temptation produces suffering, and all suffering produces temptation. All temptation produces suffering, or rather the resistance to temptation produces suffering. If you give in to temptation, your suffering is relieved, at least to some degree, at least for a time. But if you resist the temptation, the suffering does not relent. There's an anxious tension, a pressure, a discomfort, even pain that goes on and on. Nowhere was Jesus tempted more than here in the garden. He was tempted to back out of fulfilling the heart of the purpose for which he came. Who wants to be judged by the one with whom he shared an eternity of love? Who wants to be punished for the countless sins of other people? Who could blame him for praying as he did? If there's any way out of this, do it. In the end, however, Jesus submits to the Father's plan. Those final words, not my will, but yours be done, acknowledge that God is God and must be God. They acknowledge that both power and goodness are at the center of God's very nature. This is how we can understand the profound and maybe a little bewildering text of Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How can it be that God incarnate had anything to learn? But in his suffering, feeling all of it just as any mere man would feel, Jesus submitted. He was tempted to run, to hide, to get out of it by only some change of plan. Instead, he obeyed.
And don't forget the second truth. Suffering also produces temptation every time. Honestly, if the source of my pain is another human being, I might even consciously think of counterattack, of revenge, of lashing out to hurt the one who hurt me. The oppressed become oppressors, victims victimize. But the temptation to do this is subtler than that, too. No sooner am I hurting than I'm also irritable, short-tempered, impatient, unloving. And so I am tempted, not consciously, to hurt those who never hurt me. And of course, I'm tempted to bitterness toward God and withdrawal from him, treating him even in a passive-aggressive way as my invisible enemy. But Jesus continued to cry out to the Father, and he would do so until his very last breath. Did Jesus even think about self-defense? Or even feel like lashing out? Was he tempted to inflict some suffering on his sleepy, distant disciples who would ditch him and even disavow him? Was he tempted to do what he knew he could do, call down angels of destruction upon his betrayer and the mob who bound him? We don't know for sure, but Jesus, though he is God, was also a man in the flesh, and the word tells us that he was tempted in all things just as we are, yet he was without sin. In the most profound suffering, he did not succumb to temptation. He did not back away from the Father. He did not strike out at his fellow man. Now, we all spend a tremendous amount of time and energy trying to avoid suffering and to escape it. But not all suffering is avoidable or escapable. Some suffering will obviously have a purpose. My abrupt return from Afghanistan involved great suffering, but it had an obvious purpose. Your daily work is inextricably linked to some suffering, but the purpose is clear. But plenty of suffering will have no obvious purpose. The car wreck that produces pain and disability, the loss of a job, the loss of a child. There is great suffering in all these things, understood or mysterious, and great temptation. 1 Peter 2.23 tells us that Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, And so can we. This is how David could write, despite enemies pursuing him continuously, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In Psalm 23. This is how Paul could write in Philippians 4, after arrests and imprisonments and beatings and shipwreck and more, I know how to be brought low. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus had joy set before him, and so do we, if only we will see it. By the grace of God, we can endure suffering and not give in to temptation. Because of Jesus' example and help, we can submit, we can obey, we can trust our Father. Hebrews 2.18 holds remarkable promise for us, because he himself has suffered when tempted He is able to help those who are being tempted. So go ahead and cry out to Jesus in all your suffering and in the temptation it produces. He's been there. He felt it all. He will comfort you as you submit. Our all-powerful, ever-present, suffering Lord will help you endure. And don't forget your suffering is only the middle of the story. Don't forget the end of the story. Slide 18. You can pause the message here if you'd like to reflect on or discuss this message with those you're with. Here are a few questions you might consider on your own together. 
When you're finished with the discussion, resume the message as we prepare for communion together. Working in medicine for many years, it has long struck me that the anticipation of pain is often as bad or even worse than the pain itself. I see this, for example, in patients facing their first injection into one of their eyeballs. The procedure itself really isn't so terrible. No, really. But the anxiety ahead of it usually is. But in the case of Jesus and the cross, the apprehension could not have approached the terrible reality. We see Jesus distraught over what lies ahead of him, a first-ever separation between the Father and himself. Did he feel betrayed, even abandoned? We know he did. But the actual separation must have been even much worse. We don't exactly know all that transpired between the death of Jesus and his resurrection. But Jesus experienced the breaking of his body and spilling of his blood and absolute judgment for sin of the world, yours and mine, so that we are never judged in the same way. He went through an absolute judgment so that we can escape it. The worst suffering there is, we will never know it because of the suffering of Jesus. Jesus led his disciples in a picture of this, as Paul says, on the night he was betrayed, while he was still with them in the upper room, before his suffering, before his closest followers all betrayed him by falling asleep when he needed them most and deserting him at his arrest. We remember the death of Jesus each week and proclaim it as we come to the table, take some bread, dip it in the cup. Jesus died in all senses of the word, and in the most terrible sense of all. Because Jesus suffered for us, we escape spiritual death, and he gives us the power to live his spiritual life. Let's pray together. Father, this passage, these passages that you wrote down for us, Lord, in the books that all the gospel writers wrote, remind us of something hard to wrap our heads around that that our God suffers, but we thank you for it. And we, we thank you for the greatness of the sacrifice that leads to us having spiritual life in you. We thank you for the new covenant in your body and blood. And uh, we proclaim it, God, and would proclaim it to the world when we can, Lord. So, Father, thank you for this this picture of the great truth, Lord, that frees us from death and sin and all the other terrible things that a life without you brings. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.